Anthology presents Professor Challenger at the Precipice of Oblivion by Robert Thomas and Darren Freebury Jones, based on characters created by Arthur Conan Doyle. Part 1 Seance, it isn't so. It was at the peak of a sultry English summer when gin and tonic flowed as freely as the crystal waters of the Thames north of London, that I found myself set upon a collision course, once again, with destiny, the result of which would see me thrust into the harsh, desolate winds of the Scottish Highlands, and thereafter into the second most incredible adventure of my life. I was four gins deep into an afternoon at the Blades Club, having been stood up by a card-playing friend of mine who had insisted on playing a short game, despite the cloying heat. The dribble of condensation down the edge of my glass was no competition for the sweat pooling at my lower back, for though the windows were cast wide open, looking over Hyde Park and allowing the fresh breeze to circulate through the club, the heat was as intolerable as an Indian summer, where one happens to have been struck by malaria and also by Daily Belly. I was preparing, in fact, to finish my drink and leave, to make my way back to my Chelsea flat, when I was practically pinned to my seat by an oncoming storm. Will I say feel Pinagrin? Good afternoon, Lewisham. I was just leaving. Off in such a hurry, eh, Phil? Have some... Aliens to stop, have you? Need to catch up with your good friend, the Pharaoh? <laughs> <laughs> Jolly funny, Louis. Yes, top-notch banter, Louis. If you'll excuse me, gentlemen. Lewisham was a junior reporter at the Daily Gazette when I returned from my adventures with Professor George Edward Challenger some ten years earlier. Alas, his meteoric rise had hinged upon my Icarus-like fall from grace, for, as predicted in recounting my tale, I made myself something of a laughing stock. In recent years, run out of the Gazette by Lewisham and his gurning cronies, I found myself freelancing, the money for which, I can assure you, is not fantastic. Cheerio, pity. Say hello to King Tart for me, will you? Ah. <laughs> I collected my jacket and slung it over my sweaty back, making my way towards the door of the club. A deep sadness swelled within me, for this was one of my last safe haunts in London. I tried to avoid the gaze of one of the doormen, for I was behind on my tap, but his beady eyes caught me already, snaring me in a net. I was dragged into his radius. Ah, Mr. Peregrine, sir. I wonder if we might have a quick chat about your outstanding bartab. Ah, yes, well, I was just going to speak to you about that. I had no intention of speaking to him about the tab. I'm afraid that I must insist on payment before the week is out. Relief coursed through me. Escaped again, 
It was the Peregrine Way. No problem at all, old boy. We'll settle up on Friday, shall we? Very good, Mr. Peregrine. By the way, a note was left for you at the desk. Thank you very much. I took the letter and slipped it into my pocket before walking quickly out onto the street. The sun was bearing down on me, and though the rest of the population seemed to be enjoying their bank holiday weekend, I was left kicking my heels. I needed to make some cash and fast. Absently, I pulled the letter from my pocket and opened it up. I felt my eyes widen as I began to read. Dear Mr. Peregrine, heard of your exploits spiritualist advisor butler jock mctaggart highest recommendation etc and come at once well i say it was a letter from a startlingly senile old bint up in scotland summoning me at once my reputation it seemed had preceded me as had the reputation of someone else and my association with challenger that name again Surprise began to mingle with dread, for I had not seen that name in years. Challenger had all but vanished again, and though I made inquiries into his favourite holiday spot, Abdul's Deli and Opium Den in Cairo, he was nowhere to be found. He seemed to have vanished off the face of the earth. I had given up looking for Professor Challenger years ago, thinking him lost to an adventure that was finally too grand for the old man. The letter, however, had piqued my interest. Whoever this Lady Milieu was, if she lived in a castle in Scotland, then she was bound to be loaded. And even better, it would get me out of London before Friday, when my debtors would catch up with me. I resolved to arrange passage north immediately. One ticket to Aberdeen, please. Very good, sir. Have you been to Scotland before? Never. Do you have a map? A map? Of Scotland. I'm trying to get to Loch Assint. Loch Assint. Is it far from I, Aberdeen? I've na- absolutely no idea, sir. Oh, right. Do you think it'll be within walking distance, or would I be better off getting a cab? I live in Battersea, sir. I've never been to Scotland. I see. So you're not sure, then? Unfortunately not, sir. You may be able to buy a map in W.H. Smith's. don't really have the funds, old chap. Plus, I've already been to Smith's and purchased a packet of wine gums. Now I'm practically bankrupt. Rather thought you may be able to help. Disappointing, really. Anything else, sir? Yes, I'll need you to send a telegram to Castle Grunwald, Locusint. Sir, I don't... Milieu, stop. Peregrine here, stop. We'll need collection from Aberdeen. Stop. Can you read that back to me? I, sir, I'd rather Look, think... I must dash. This is my train, after all. I trust you'll send the message? Uh, yes, sir. Jolly good. I wasn't sure what he was gawping about, but I dashed aboard the Caledonian sleeper just as it began to chug away from the station. We peeled out of Paddington, the afternoon sun baking the houses along the edge of the railway line. You could practically see the heat simmering off the tiled rooftops as London fell away behind us. I watched through the window of my compartment as we burst free of the big smoke, chuffing northwards into the lush green countryside. I felt a great 
pressure released from me. All I would need to do now was send a message from Aberdeen to delay my bill payment for a few days, get a bit of cash and as advisor for this Lady Milieu character, and return to London, hopefully with something I could whip into article shape. Seems simple enough. I had done my research this time, for I understood the Scottish Highlands to be miserably cold, even during a heatwave. My suitcase was bursting with cold weather gear, a couple of good books, a nice set of pyjamas, and a box of Belgian chocolates. This was going to be a very nice holiday indeed. We were rattling past Cambridge as the sun began to dip beneath the ochre horizon, and the purple canvas above was pitted with stars. Deciding that the view out of the window, which was now mostly a sort of unending black smudge below a sort of unending dark grey smudge wasn't worth allotting much more attention to. I dressed for dinner and strolled towards the dining car. Unfortunately, it seemed that I had timed things rather late, for there was only one seat left in the whole car, and it was across from two Americans, who I found terribly, terribly dull. Good evening, chaps. Philip Peregrine. How do you do? Oh, yeah. Uh, howdy, partner. My name is Henry Choker. Nice to meet you. How do you do? Hello. And this is my, uh, partner, uh, um, Jesse. How do you do? He's not much of a talker, cowpoke. I see. Anything good on the menu? Yeah, the schnitzel is... I mean... Yes, the scallops. Scallops, eh? Top notch. Waiter. Yes, sir. I will have the scallops, please. Very good, sir. So, what brings you to Aberdeen, Hepperin? I mean, partner. Oh, you know, just a little business trip. I'm off to a place called Lockassint. Have you heard of it? Lockassint there? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, bally good. I made a note of that joke so that I could use it later. Yes, I am off to Lockersint. Off to meet a funny old bird about some ghosts, would you believe? That is so, Cowpoke. Yes, she wrote me a letter asking for my help. I'm quite a well-known adventurer, you see. Is that so? It is. I didn't want him to ask any awkward questions, so tried not to say another word to him for the rest of the meal. As I have explained at length before, I am not a great fan of Americans. We ate in near silence, the chewing grating on all of us until we reached a point where it became a race to finish our dinners. All the while, Jesse, the hulking great bear of a man, stared at me, silent and laconic. I noticed that the irises of both his eyes were an unusual crimson colour as though blood had seeped from the pupils outward, staining them. Once or twice he caught me looking, but most of the time I think I got away with it. Dinner over, I retired to my berth to get a good night's kip. Usually I was able to get my head down wherever I could and have at the very least a fitful sleep. A train, a steamship, the wing of a cheeky little Fokker EV cruising at 15,000 feet above the Bay of Bengal, But that night, I was most uneasy. Something about those two Americans had unnerved me. 
It reminded me of the last time I had taken a train journey with a troublesome American, and that had ended up in a disaster. Two of them? Well, I could only imagine what that would mean. Light from the passageway split across the floor of my compartment. The quiet creaking had stirred me, rousing me from my imaginings of paying off my tab in full and then ordering a large scotch to get the next one going. I peered over the covers, barely daring to breathe. In the doorway looking in was a colossus of a man, thick, sausagey fingers sliding the door to the side and in his hand, a weapon which was nothing like a sausage and actually looked rather like a knife. I was alarmed, but tried to maintain my cool. I pretended to sleep. The man crept into my compartment looking towards me, listening to my convincing snoring. A moment passed, and then he seemed satisfied that I was asleep. I threw in some noises as though I, I was dreaming deeply and, and, and talking in my sleep. Uh, I, 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 do, uh, I do like a deep sleep. Uh, I, I do like a deep sleep. I do like a deep sleep. The man opened the drawer of the little desk across the room from my bed. Maintaining my fake snoring, and the occasional instance of soft flatulence for good measure, I watched as he rifled through my things, checking my papers. He hefted my paperback copy of Lord Edgware Dies, and definitely spoilt the ending for himself as he flicked through it. Then, seemingly satisfied, he put it back. He approached me. I could feel his hot breath my forehead as he peered at me. I screwed my eyes shut and continued to pretend to dream. Then I was struck by a lightning bolt of an idea. Oh no! Not the living statue! How will I ever get out of this one? Oh, oh dear! I'm terribly frightened of this adventure. Alarmed by my foe nightmare, he rushed out of the room, dropping something as he went and closing the door behind him. Stay out. I leapt from the bed and bolted the door, something admittedly I should have done earlier, and went to the desk. After this, eh? I took the note, summoning me to Lady Milieu from my dressing gown pocket. This must have been what the man was after. Then, casting my eyes to the floor of the compartment, goodness me, I spotted what was indeed a knife, and definitely not a sausage after all, glistening in the moonlight. Someone was out to get me, I could guess that much. As the train rocketed deeper into the night, it dawned on me that I would need to be a lot more careful from here on out. What was it Challenger used to say? Every step I took must be calm and collected. We arrived in Aberdeen the next morning. I ate my breakfast on the train cautiously as we cruised through the Scotch countryside and I sipped my tea urgently as we crawled into the train station. I collected my case and stepped off the train onto the platform, hurrying to the telegraph office so that I could notify the Blades Club that I would be a few days late settling my tab. 
By the time I had done that, I was tracked down by my driver to Grunwald Castle. He seemed awfully familiar to me, but with his totally bald head, lack of eyebrows and deathly pale skin, he wasn't familiar at all. He looked a bit like a gorilla that had been shaved all over and dipped in white paint. Follow me this way, Mr. Berrigan. The guard is waiting. He led me to the car park. Past the rank and file of the taxicabs who all looked upon us with envious eyes, and opened the door of the brand new Phantom 3 Rolls Royce. The car was a beauty, the deep maroon practically glowing in the mid-morning sun, which, this being Scotland, was rather miserable, giving the car an even more prevalent aura. He jerked the vehicle awkwardly into gear. Lovely car! Aye, and in a wee bit unruly though, Mr. Berrigan. This could be a bumpy ride, like. Oh, wonderful. It turned out that Lockersint was rather a long way from Aberdeen. It was, in fact, the other side of Scotland, which my driver told me at length three or four times over the seemingly unending voyage across the misty moors. We climbed over the crest of a hill and plunged down into a forest, the silver fingers of the lock clawing into the green landscape. Soon, we were trundling along the winding, tree-lined roads that led to Grunwald Castle, the V-12 engine burring through the mist, lowering the sky. The back of my driver's wrinkly bald head exerted a certain gorgonic effect on me, as I found myself tracing absently the deep grooves and lines that carved their way across his thick skull. I'm so glad you took up my mistress' offer, Mr. Perrigan. Well, the pleasure is all mine, Mr. Jock McTaggart is the name, sir. And as usual, you seem to have forgotten the necessary niceties and focused only on yourself. I beg your pardon. Uh, sir, it's awful lovely to meet you too, Mr. Perrigan. My mistress will be awful thrilled to see you. Having read of your adventures a few years back, she knew you'd be of an open mind when it came to a ghost problem, even if you have a tendency to embellish a lot of it. I'm not giving enough credit to Professor Challenger. Well, I mean, it was quite factual, really. Oh, uh, really? Is that right, Phil? Mr. Perrigan? Well, yes. You weren't there, were you? No. No, I was not. And don't you forget it. So, this ghost problem... Aye, my mistress has a terrible problem indeed, Mr. Berrigan. But she's haunted by the ghost of Baron Seamus Seagrove, the third. The third? D don't you mean the third? Nay, the third. Legend says he was a most pungent fellow. His stink has permeated the nostrils of all those who've lived in Grunwald Castle, ever since he was mowed to death by hungry deer a hundred years ago. That sounds ghastly. Aye, it was. Tore his head clean off. Goodness! Aye, and ask me how he smelled after that. How did he smell? Terrible! Ha ha ha! Aye, well, I've been waiting to tell that joke for quite some time. Perhaps I've over practised. Yes, quite. I think you like my mistress very much. A proper rich lady. She could do with a good husband. Whoever marries her will be a rich groom indeed. He'll inherit the castle and all its treasures. Just a ticket for a man who is doing on his luck. You know. When I saw you at the telegraph office, I thought you looked like a cunt. Um, excuse me? A cunt, I said. You've got a regal air about you. You've got nobility in your countenance, man. Oh, a count. Thank you, I, I think. Aye, and did you hear what I said about being done in your look, and this being just a ticket for a fella like yourself? I've no doubt that your stay will be very fortuitous in the very least. Certainly sounds that way. 
We arrived at Grunwald Castle, which seemed to drown everything beneath it in petrifying gloominess. It reached towards the Empyrean heavens with snatching turret fingers, ribbons of light glancing off its dirty windows. I cast a look about me at the dangerous adders gliding through the forest clearings, a mass of steel greys, light browns and zigzag stripe patterns, given the impression that the ground itself was writhing like a sulphurous pit deep in the tartan underworld. Kites peering through shadows with wide amber eyes, seeking to bloody their beaks with voles and shrews. Rabid wolves filled the air with low-pitched howls. It was awful. Wonderful, isn't it? Indeed. Well, there was a nice fountain outside. Where do you see the interior? Oh, I can barely wait. I had bet not. Pushing open the great oak doors, I was overawed by heraldic motifs and the portraits of all of Lady Milieu's ancestors, their eyes penetrating me hard and deep. They were a sinister-looking bunch, all with deep-set irises and weirdly bird-like noses. Front and centre, an enormous moustache covering his crooked nose, was a man I assumed to be the late Baron Seamus Seagrove. Gosh, what a lovely artwork. McTaggart, I wonder if- Before I could finish my question, McTaggart let out the most whiny and obsequious noise I have ever heard. Lady His voice echoed across the vast castle, reaching into every nook and cranny. There was no need, though, as the butler's mistress seemed to materialise beside a three-chambered fireplace, all clad in black her skin even paler than her butler's. Wiry black hair was slick to her scalp, and either she had very high cheekbones, or her forehead had fallen down. Her sudden appearance took me by surprise. Good lord! You took me by surprise. Where did you come from? Uh, uh, I, I mean, madam, I am Philip Peregrine. It is a great honour to meet you. I thank you for your message inviting me here to act as a spiritual advisor. One doesn't recall summoning you, Mr. Peregrine, but one is glad of your arrival all the same. My butler here has assured me at length that yours is the kind of disposition that is open to the weird and wondrous. Yes, well, if you read my stories, you'll know that I'm pretty experienced in the weird and wondrous. One has not read your stories, like much of the rest of the world, one was not particularly interested in them. Oh, right, I see. One, nevertheless, hopes you can help us, or at least provide a sober-minded account of the strange goings-on at Grunwald Castle to your tens of remaining readers. After all, when one has a ghost problem, who is one supposed to call upon? Your butler mentioned that there is something strange in your neighbourhood. The spirit of a certain baron. Yes, yes, Baron Seamus Seagrove the Turd. He certainly still lingers, but this castle has many voices that echo in even its deepest, darkest chambers. I must say, the name of this castle doesn't sound very Scottish. One believes it was renamed by one of one's ancestors, who hailed from Germania, took refuge in Scotland, and married into the French Delacroix and Milieu families several centuries ago. 
French as well. How very foreign. What strange goings on have there been exactly? One gets the sense that one is always being watched, especially when one is bathing or getting undressed. There's definitely a ghost map. Certainly sounds ghoulish, yes. Sometimes one hears footsteps outside one's chamber door and voices in the middle of the night. My butler is satisfied that someone beyond the veil wishes to contact us. Aye, a voice calling out from the darkness. Fascinating. Yes, quite. My butler will give you a tour of the castle. No, I don't think that will be necessary. Yes, it will. I would like that very much. And then we can conduct the seance. No chance to settle in? We have no time to lose, Peregrine. Uh, I mean, Lady Mary. Might have a quick word in your ear. If you must. Don't you think it might be worth getting to know Mr. Berrigan first? You're not getting any younger. He might make for a good suitor. <laughs> One doubts it. He looks like a pencil in a suit. He is not one's type. Well, you haven't gotten to know him yet. Aye, give him a chance, my lady. Show him around, please. And then prepare the table. Aye, at your command, lady. The butler and I ascended the grand staircase found it difficult to concentrate on what he was saying as he burred away in veiled terms about some plan or other. As far as I was concerned, the only plan I needed to make was whether to have soup or the prawns as a starter for my dinner. My belly was rumbling. I hadn't eaten in hours, forgotten to pack sandwiches for the long journey across the highlands, and the scallops from last night, combined with the jerky stop-start driving style of the weird butler for hours on end, were playing havoc with my insides. As we peeled away from the entrance of the dungeons, which McTaggart seemed very keen to show me and to make clear that I knew exactly how to get to for later, he opened up a new line of inquiry. Don't you think my lady is gorgeous, Mr. Perrigan? She's a stunter, as we say here in Scotland. A proper bunny lass. I can't tell whether it's the solitary hair poking out of the mole of her cleft lip, or the quizzical squirm of her monobrow, but she's definitely striking. Any idea what we'll be having for dinner? You should try to woo her. She'd make you very rich. I'm not particularly materialistic, though I could do with the money. But when I marry, it shall be for love. Don't be a soppington! I mean, give it time, sinner. You can surely find it in your heart to fall in love with such a grand lady. I guess I could give it a try. Any idea about dinner, then? You might inquire about their ex-lovers, what they were like and whatnot. Why might I do that? To get a sense of her type, of course. I see. Tore over, I was led, still clutching my valise, to the grand dining room once again overlooked by the portraits of all the generations of this creepy, mysterious, and rather spooky family. There was something quite kooky about this castle altogether. I had resolved that Lady Milieu was not the woman for me. Imagine our children, all bone and beak. I was seated at an oval table, candlelight dancing around me, the butler and Lady Milieu. The lady told us to join hands in a symbolic circle. Impulsively, I stroked her palm with an affectionate thumb, but she merely scowled in return. 
Jock gripped my other hand in a sweaty vice. There was something weirdly comforting about the feel of his hand upon mine, a familiarity I couldn't quite place my finger on. I say, I am starving. Thank you so much for providing that velvet bread, Lady Minute. Any chance of some butter? That bread is for the spirits. For the spirits? But I've not had a drink yet, and anyway, that's ridiculous. It is a spiritual tradition. Mortal hands must not break it. My belly groaned in reply. Lady Mary! Shall we commence? Yes, let's. Our beloved spirit, we bring you gifts from life into death. Commune with us and move among us. The sky was darkening outside. All was still. All was silent. I say, it doesn't look like any spirit's fancy chinwag. The candles were snuffed in an instant as a dank wind blew through the castle and the table trembled forcibly. A huge roll of thunder shook the grand table. This scared me half to death. I say, this has scared me half to death. Can you smell that? A horrid stench has just seeped into the hall. Baron Seamus Seagrove the Turd is among us. I'm not so sure that's the Baron, madam. How do you mean? You see, when the candles went out, I just had a bit of an accident. Something's never changed. What sort of an accident? I'd rather not talk about it. Very well, Mr. Peregrine. It's an ongoing problem. My doctor is at a loss how to cure it. If Lady Milieu had any doubts about my making for a good suitor, I had just confirmed them. Suddenly, she gargled and groaned. I'm sorry if my bowels have sickened you, man. It is not your bowels that I am concerned about, sir. It is the bowels of hell. Oh, right-ho. He is here. A voice I hadn't heard in many years rose out of her throat. It is Edward Malone. Oh, God, no! Of all of the spirits I might fear, my old colleague at the Gazette was the worst. You may recall that after he had perished, I left him rotting in my study, and I'm ashamed to say that upon returning from Antarctica, I had disposed of his corpse in a laundry basket, which I dumped into the Thames. Fortunately, I wasn't the person Malone wished to convene with. Of course you should be here with the hour of destiny, but fortunately you are not the person I wish to convene with. Was that so? Who is it you're after then? I speak to Professor Chandler. He, uh, he isn't here. Beware the man with the red eye, Chandler. Beware, for great danger awaits you at the precipice of oblivion. The endeavor is doomed from the start. I'll pass on a message for you if you like, Edward. Must not fail, Judge. Great hour approaches. I must say, I wasn't expecting you to be here. Anything else to add? You still owe me thirty pounds. No, I don't. Oh yes, you do. Who oh, no, I don't? Oh yes, you do. I definitely paid. I mean, Professor Challenger definitely paid you back. Before the ghost of Malone could respond, Lady Milieu slumped forward, her hand cold in mine. Good Lord, she's dead. 
No, she isn't, you absolute dunsing tumbler. I know your voice. Your... Oh. oh, my. Lady Milieu's head rose sheepishly, and when she spoke, it was again in her usual monotonous voice. Why did that spirit wish to warn Professor Challenger? The Professor is not among us. I'm afraid, ma'am. I've got a confession to make. Oh, spit it out, McTaggart. I am George Edward Challenger. Oh, God. Oh, no, not again. Lovely to see you too, Harry Grimm. This whole time you were really McTaggart. Of course, you idiots. I even told you as much on the tour of the house. Now, Lady Miriam, the sleeping draught in your tea should take effect in three, two, one... There. She'll be out for hours. Come, Peregrine. We have work to do. I gasped audibly. <gasps> Surely nobody could have foreseen this turn of events. Could this nude ape really be my old comrade? And if so, why had he led me to Locusint? Who was the man with the red eye? And most importantly, what exactly was the precipice of oblivion? Professor Challenger at the Precipice of Oblivion starred Robert Durbin as Philip Peregrine, Darren Freebury-Jones as Professor Challenger, Avian Apcadno as Lewisham, Adam Ankin as The Conductor, Alex Mann as Henry Choker, and Laura Phillips as Lady Milieu, with Alid Bidder as the Ghost of Malone. You've been listening to an anthology production written and directed by Robert Thomas and Darren Freebury-Jones.